You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunn. That's right. Welcome in to a very special episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from ESPN.com. Alongside me, as always, uh, my other co-host, your other co-host for the CME, uh, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, Ben Folks. Ben, I'm just going to start you with a question since we'll be doing a lot of them today. Hit On me. a scale of 1 to 10, rate your level of excitement for all questions answered. 56. Wow, yeah. so incredibly excited. Incredibly, dangerously excited. Wow, yeah. If my doctor knew I was this excited, my personal physician, he, he would be alarmed. Wow. Yeah, it's not safe. Yeah, you know, always consult your doctor to find out if you're healthy enough for sex. <laughs> I consult him every day. It's, uh, the, the bills are getting kind of out of hand. <laughs> uh, as we alluded to last week, uh, this, this is a sort of a groundbreaking episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast this week. Uh, I don't know what we finally decided to call it. All questions considered, some questions answered, something like that. Something like that. Uh, essentially how this is going to work today, uh, it could end up being kind of an old school uh, episode of the podcast. I don't know if we're going to do rounds so much as we are just we're, we're just going to answer questions until one of us gases out well and who knows how long that is we got a lot of questions about all kinds of different topics trying to get through the goal is to see if we can get through them all uh i don't know how long that that might possibly take but we do we are going to mix things up and try and get through some of them quicker than others we have you know first we're going to use a bunch of questions as discussion topics and things to talk about but we have ourselves a couple lightning rounds built in here where uh during the middle of the question asking, we will pause uh, and we'll see we'll see how many questions Chad can answer in his lightning round. We'll time him and then we'll compare that time to my time in the lightning round. I feel like I got him beat on this one because uh, I'm just I'm just going to hammer these things out. Now, are we going to have a gentleman's agreement that says the person who is asking the questions during the lightning round won't sandbag and tank right. the other person's time by taking a long time reading the questions of course no i think we can we can all agree that that would be a bullshit move uh and it would take a real bullshit person to to try something like that i don't, I don't want to win like that i want to beat you fair and square well that remains to be seen anyway uh yeah as ben alluded to this week we asked for the listeners of the podcast to submit as many questions as they wanted questions from all comers on all topics and uh essentially for this episode we're going to try to shoot through as many of them as we can and uh we got a a a shitload of them so i don't think the the problem is not going to be for this episode that we run out of questions i don't think metric fuckload of questions so we've got that part of it taken care of you you want to just dive in? Yeah, you let's ready? get it started. Let's you kick it off. Up? Let's kick it off. I'll read the first one. Okay. Does that sound okay? Okay. Our, our first question this week comes from listener Patrick Day, who says, With all the talk of Ronda Rousey being one of the sport's true superstars, it sounded like there were a lot of empty seats for her fight over the weekend. Further, while at the time of this writing it's too early for the Rousey versus Kaufman ratings to have come in, the Tate versus Rousey ratings seem to have been summed up as could have been worse, could have been better. Is it truly accurate to describe her as a superstar like the media has hyped her up to be, or is she more of a novelty? Ben? You know... It's one thing to say there were some empty seats, so therefore maybe Ronda Rousey is not the messiah that, that she was made out to be. But it, let's compare strike force to strike force and apples to apples. You know what I'm saying? 
I mean, the Strike Force is not doing terribly well in general as a promotion. They've gone to to other cities with great cards and couldn't give away tickets just because they're not doing the the promotion the right way or they're they're not really establishing those some of those places. Uh, I mean, just because maybe maybe the ratings won't be spectacular for this on Showtime on a Saturday night then in the end of summer. I don't know. Uh, but we ha- we can't compare it to like a, a huge UFC pay-per-view or something because it's just not the same thing, right? I mean, I feel like people are doing that here. And I feel like there's also a lot of people who, like I see this a lot on, on sites now or kind of right leading up to the fight where people are complaining that the media was shoving Ronda Rousey down their throats. I mean, for fuck's sake, it's the only fight. It's the main event on the, the only big uh, event on this Saturday night. What else did you want us to talk about? Do you feel like... We were not given Lumumba Sayers uh, his due on that one. You feel like there was, wasn't enough OSP coverage. We were too busy shoving Ronda Rousey down your throats. I mean, she's the main event. That's what we talk about, right? Yeah, not enough TJ Cook uh, coverage out there for my tastes. Working man. With you. But, uh, it's a working man. Yeah, I, I feel like at least some of the proclamations about Ronda Rousey being a superstar are based on her potential. I don't think she's fully realized that yet, either as a fighter or as a... Uh, I guess you could say marketable commodity for the sport. Um, but I think she definitely has that potential. I mean, you see her in the cage and she, she's clearly at least to what we've seen up to this point, like almost John Jonesian in terms of like the gap between her and everyone else that she's fighting. That's true. Well, uh, and she's at six fights. She's yeah, on the six, cover of ESPN, the magazine she's on Conan. She's bringing the bell at the stock market. I mean, she, she is kind, as far as just like celebrity status, uh, especially for female MMA fighters, she's right there in that superstar range, but I mean, she's not who is. For sure, yeah. And I think, you know, with Dana White taking the rather progressive step of of uh, at least insinuating that she could fight in the UFC at some point, I think, you know, that's at least where some of this, this talk comes from. And, and, you know, I would partially agree with Patrick to say that that uh, I don't think she will have reached true superstar status in, in, until she does officially fight in the UFC. You want to read the next question? All right. Uh, another Patrick, Patrick Doherty, asks, Do you guys find it difficult to believe Chris Cyborg when she says she cannot make 135? She is a five foot eight inch professional athlete, not to mention a woman who, this is in quotes, naturally, has less muscle mass than men. Dominic Cruz and many other male bantamweights are five foot eight or even taller. Was it a mistake to say she can't make 135 so soon after she started watching her, again in quotes, diet? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, clearly in the past, Cyborg struggled to even make 145. So I, I don't know whether we can either dismiss or accept her claims about not being able to make 135, you know, simply out of hand. Uh, clearly the weight cutting part of her game was something that she struggled with in the past. Now, I don't know if we're going to see a markedly different cyborg return from this steroid suspension. Yeah, that's what we're getting at here with a diet in quotes. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you alluded last week to say that uh, perhaps it would be even more damning if Cyborg yeah. came in and made 135 with no problem, uh, when in the past the I guess you might say gassed up version of of Cyborg said or couldn't you know failed at least a couple of times to make 145. So yeah, I mean imagine she shows up just looking really really svelte, uh, a much smaller version of herself. Then because that's the thing we always wonder with we talk about it with Overeem, we talk about it with anybody who gets busted for steroids is like we start to wonder okay. Does this mean that you know you just recently started using them and you got caught, or that you've always been using them and you just screwed it up once? It's like with Chris Lieben. When Chris Lieben got caught for it, you were like, 
Well, I believe that that's probably the only time, or if not right. the only time. Not only that, for that fight, he showed up looking like a 1,000 times in better shape yeah, than he had, had ever had before. Yeah, had abs for a change, yeah. So, you know, with some of those people, you can be like, okay, look, I, I believe that that was not going on all the time. But if she shows up and now suddenly can make 135 with these, that makes you think her entire career was, you know, steroid-fueled. Uh, the next question comes from Justin Latvala. And he says, greetings from Finland, and thanks for the greatest cute little podcast of all time. <laughs> My question is about two pick-and-choose champions of the middleweight and light heavyweight divisions, Silva and Jones. Silva's undefeated streak is awesome. However, shouldn't the quality of Jones's competition be taken into consideration when one state... When one states which one of them will be the greatest, Jones has defeated Shogun, Rampage, Machida, and Evans, a.k.a. trained killers. That's capitalized, trained killers. Uh, <laughs> while Silva's resume consists of Cote, uh, Ledis, Maya, Luder, etc., a.k.a. one-legged Canadian math teachers. <laughs> And yeah, no, this I is from Finland. We're sure this is not from Chael Zonin. I don't know, man. You sure this didn't come from Westland, Oregon. Did you well, check the IP address on this? Yeah, I, I, I sort of have to agree with Justice in that I don't think anyone, maybe in the history of the sport, has gone through a list of opponents vanquished as impressively as Jones has over the last year, year and a half. Okay, but uh, he's but, being a little unfair to, to Silva there. A little he, bit. He picks out the word. Like, I don't see Chael Sonnen on that list. I don't see Okami. I mean, come on! I, I don't. I don't see Marquardt. Come on, he's got. He's beaten some guys and Rich Franklin. Like, I mean, I guess that the math teacher one alludes to that one. But come on, when you pick out Cote, Lighty is you know Travis Luter. That that seems to me like you're trying. That's the most ungenerous take yeah. you can have. No, I was gonna say I don't. I don't think. I mean, I think Jones probably has the most impressive win streak maybe in the history of the sport. But I don't think that you can say he's the greatest of all time. I think that that honor clearly still goes to Silva. Uh, you know, maybe more than anything, just because of the longevity of the win streak. Now, will John Jones be the greatest of all time by the time it's said and done? I think he certainly has that potential, but. I would shudder and shy away from actually making that proclamation about anyone just because, man, anything can happen. Well, that's your answer. Anything can happen. Okay. No, that's, that's fun. All right. Uh, we'll move on from uh, JD. I guess we can't screw that up. Uh, after sending my question to you yesterday regarding linear kicks to the knee, the topic came up during the Strike Force Rousey versus Kaufman prelims. Adlon Amagov used one to ultimately defeat Keith Berry. Great example of the issue. Pat Milicic said the kicks were, in fact, illegal. If so, why have I never seen a ref step in or reprimand a fighter for this? Thanks. Question is, shouldn't this be considered joint manipulation? And if they're not already, should they be illegal? Yeah, that those questions appeared uh, the opposite of how JD actually sent them in. The end, the end question that he was the original email that he sent us where he asked if, if linear kicks to the knee should be considered joint ma manipulation. Uh, and, and the truth is that in MMA, the rule is against small joint manipulation. Yeah, you can manipulate in the knee bars joint manipulation. Yeah, many legal MMA submissions manipulate joints. In fact, all of them that are not chokes sort of do that. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, w the small joint manipulation, the rule is to prevent guys from like breaking another guy's thumb yeah. or like... Uh, uh, vicious toe hold. Yeah, the vicious toe hold. Uh, basically, to keep it from turning into a like 1890s fight in a timber camp <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> I think that'd be awesome. Uh, and and to, to speak to the question about linear kicks, I don't think that they can be considered joint manipulation, and I don't know why you would have them be illegal. Do you? No, I mean Pat Millett just seemed to be making the case that the potential to screw up somebody's knee 
uh, and screw up their career that way was too high. And I don't, I couldn't tell if he was trying to say that he thought they were illegal or that he thought they should be illegal. Uh, it was because you know Anderson Silva uses those kicks. Other people have used those kicks. It's kind of the the Bruce Lee stop kick uh, kind of motion. I mean, I I don't see a reason why you can just say, well, hey, this kick seems like it might hurt a guy's knee, therefore we can't do it. I mean, we're trying to hurt each other in there. That's kind of, like, the kick upside your head might hurt you. I don't see why we need to make a special distinction for that kind of kick just because, you know, hey, none of us wants our knees to get messed up. I mean, a, a heel hook's going to mess up your knee. Like, I, I don't get it. The kick to the head would be brain manipulation. Brain manipulation, right? yeah. Uh, the Equilibrium next question comes from Ryan, which and it's just more of a statement. It says Chad should do an entire episode in his Don Fry voice. Just saying, um, I don't know if I have a Don Fry voice, but I assume that that Ryan is referring to an earlier episode of the podcast when I said Gilbert. There it is. We can do it again, brother. <laughs> we can do it again. So that's pretty much all I got. I don't, I don't think you can do an entire episode like that. No, I think you'll no. you'll falter. Yeah, my voice would give out. I guess maybe we find out why Don Fry always makes sure to keep his vocal cords so lubricated. <laughs> right, next question comes from Ben T, who says, Okay, maybe John Jones's comments about not wanting to fight Leota Machida, quote, makes sense for him, which is what much of the media is telling us. That part's in parentheses. But are we allowed to dislike him for, more for saying this? Because I feel a strong urge to do so. Man, it almost feels like John Jones can't win, you know? No. Like, no matter what he does, people are going to take that as another uh, step to dislike him even more. Uh, and, you know, we talked about this before. I wrote something about it on ESPN.com. I don't think John Jones should fight Machida. I don't think he has anything to gain. And so for him to come out and say that he doesn't want to, I think is perfectly understandable. But to me, the more interesting question is is why he seems to be so disliked by such a large portion of the fan base, because I don't know if I can think of another athlete in, in almost any sport who has been so, you know, who, who has the potential to be so transcendent just in terms of competition, who has then, and, and also has been so dominant and has then been so disliked by fans. I don't, to me, it's, I mean, I guess I can see the, the, some of the, the, the traits that he has that makes him a little bit unpopular, but the, the, sheer volume of the hatred that he receives on the internets is kind of uh, baffling to me. Yeah, and I, I think with this one, I I fully get his point there. I mean, I think where maybe he caught some flack was in uh, his open discussion of uh, money and how how profitable it might be for him to, to fight Leota Machida. Uh, but those guys are all thinking that whether they say it. And see, this is another thing where the John Jones can't win comes in because it's like, Oh, John Jones is fake. Everybody will say, oh, you know, I think Rashad Evans is right. John Jones is fake. He's putting on an act for everybody. But when he talks about, you know, hey, as a businessman, I don't think this fight makes a whole lot of financial sense for me because people didn't really want to buy the pay-per-view the last time I fought Leo Machida. I mean, that's real. That's what a lot of these guys, the guys who are getting cuts of the pay-per-view and stuff, that's what a lot of people are, are thinking. Uh, a lot of guys are thinking that way business-wise, um, but they don't want to say it because they know fans don't want to think of them thinking that way. When John Jones says it, then people get mad at him. Uh, it's like they can simultaneously accuse him of admitting to stuff he shouldn't admit to, but also being fake, uh, which those two things don't go together. Plus, he's got a point. Choked Machida out, dropped him dropped him like a bag of laundry, as dirty, Chad says. Dirty laundry. Dirty laundry. Uh, less than a year ago. You want to, and, 
as you said, people didn't work crazy about the pay-per-view then. Now people want to see him do it again. I don't know. I don't really see the, the interest in that one. So I'm with him on that. The next question comes from Scott Pfeiffer. Uh, he asks, most, most fighters are against TRT because of the unfair performance enhancement belief. Don't all fighters take vitamins and supplements? Aren't those performance enhancers? Yes. So it's okay to enhance performance, but not too much? Thoughts? Okay. We're... <laughs> this, this is a, a specious... Some specious reasoning here going... Okay. Look, the thing is, it's like if I'm taking, you know, creatine, right? Some, you know, some kind of just power to help me in recovery and training, which everybody can take. Not on the banned list. And does take. Yeah. Everyone does take. Everyone, everyone can go and get it. Fine. Uh, testosterone is not the same thing. Not everyone can go and get it. You got to file out the, fill out this application with the athletic commission to try and get a therapeutic use exemption. It's like the thing with steroids. Like what makes steroids cheating? We all agreed we wouldn't do it. You know, that's, that's the big thing. I mean, we can get into the stuff about like, okay, this is too enhancing or something or, you know, and this isn't, but that's what makes it cheating is that not everyone can do it. Only some people uh, go and do it. Therefore it's not fair to everyone. Right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think that we all kind of got a crash course this week in what kind of performance enhancement you can get out of testosterone. I think in the past when we've talked about it, I've always thought to myself, yeah, these guys are gassing up on testosterone and it's helping them out, but how much? And then, you know, this past week when uh, Melky Cabrera from the San Francisco Giants tested positive for testosterone, uh, it it really kind of hammered home the point to me of just how performance enhancing I think it can be because this was a guy who uh, had hit like – 265 270 in the major leagues previous to this when he used to play for the Yankees suddenly they trade him over to the Giants and he gets a chance to play every day and he has like the second highest batting average in the National League and he's one of the front runners to win the NL MVP so uh, if if there was a question before about hey how much of an advantage are these guys actually getting from doing this thing as far as I'm concerned case closed on that <laughs> and also totally awesome that Melky Cabrera tried to pay somebody to make a fake website to try to cover up his testosterone uh usage and i'm kind of surprised that no mixed martial arts fighter has thought to do that yet well maybe now yeah now that they've seen it i think maybe the business of uh fake website construction for pro (laughs) fighters might take off we we, we might be in a long wrong line of work here um next question comes from craig who says let's talk pride rules being used in the ufc in fact let's forget all the pride rules except one a 10 minute first round Let's not forget, after all the training, the weigh-ins, the media, the press conference, all the sparkly bits, once that cage door closes with two fighters stood eye-to-eye in the center, and center here is spelled in the Canadian fashion, so no, we're dealing with, or British, they are essentially about to have a fight. Yes, it's a sport, and yes, it's regulated by athletic commissions, but it's still a fight between two men. A 10-minute first round is far easier to score. I imagine a much higher percentage of fights would end in the first round, thus negating the need for the judge's scorecard. And even if we had a 10-minute first round, 5-minute second round, it would be easier to score. 5-minute rounds are often very close. A 10-minute round would make it far easier for the fighter with better technique, sharper skills, and better cardio to impose his will and ultimately win the fight. Chad? Uh, maybe. I'm not one of these guys that, that sits around and pines for the old days of pride. Uh, yeah. I'm not crazy about the, the, the pride rules. Uh Clearly, the judging over there had its own problems, uh, maybe not so much related to the fight as related to 
knowing who was supposed to win just before they had it, just the fight. Say it. Uh, the, the thing about 10-minute first rounds, though, is kind of interesting to me. Uh, I'm not sure that the round becomes easier to score, especially since it seems like the judges we have here stateside have a hard time paying attention for the full five minutes. I don't know if you're yeah. going to get Judo Jean LaBelle to bring the full extent of his faculties to bear for a 10-minute round. Yeah, you know, and I think, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think later on, if we get to it, there's another question from somebody who suggests shortening the rounds for that very reason, that the longer the round is, the harder it is for a judge to remember everything that happened and keep yeah. that all in their heads when they go to score it. Also, though, I don't know if you've gone back and watched any of those Pride fights recently. You know, sometimes they'll show them on Fuel TV and stuff now, uh, and, you know... I'm not gonna lie. I got I got a couple of DVDs in the basement that I'll I'll pull out uh, and and throw on one afternoon if my wife is out of the house. But some of those fights, some of those ten minute first rounds, they get ugly around minute seven or eight when yeah. there's two guys just yeah. just basically huffing and puffing at each other. Uh, some of that might have been some of the extracurricular substance use that went on in, in Pride, and some of it might have been just the state of MMA at the time, where the the level of athletes wasn't quite as high, but 10 minutes is a long time to stand there and fight. I mean, I guess it does encourage them, like, hey, better go out there and see if you can take him out in round one because uh, otherwise you're going to be in there for a long time and, and that might not go your way. Maybe, but I don't know. I, I don't know if we really want to see what's going to happen, especially you imagine some of those heavyweights. You get some heavyweights oh, yeah, on ugly. a card in Denver Ooh, doing yeah. a 10-minute first round. Ugly. Forget about it. Man. You'd have guys putting their hands on their shorts and breathing at each other before the first round is even <laughs> yeah, over. Yeah. Nobody no. wants to see that. No. Well, we're 20 minutes into this thing. You want to do a lightning round? Okay, we can do a lightning round. So how this is going to work is that Ben's going to ask me, I think, 12 questions. Is that right? Yes. And we're going to time it. We've got 12 of them here. Um, yeah, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask them as quickly as I can without sacrificing clarity. Chad gives okay. his answer. We move on right away. I have my cell phone out. I am going to keep time. Chad, you let me know when you are ready. All right, I think I'm, I'm not looking at the questions, so this is going to be interesting. Okay. But I'm ready, I think. Okay. Lightning round begins now. From Dead Panda, if the personification of Ronda Rousey's armbar and Boss Rutten's liver punch met in a cold, dark alley, who would win? Gotta take the grappler, Rousey. From Seth Pickett, with Rousey's judo being so unstoppable and her working on le learning stand-up skills, is the only viable way for anyone to beat her a one-punch knockout? Starting to look that way. From Norm, I may still have a severe case of Olympic fever. Given all the judging problems we see with MMA, could the sport benefit from utilizing seven judges, like, say, diving or gymnastics? With a seven-judge system, you just throw out the two highest and two lowest scores and be left with the three most meaningful scores. Dear God, no, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> from Danny T. in London, what's the story behind the name Dundas? Never heard of it before. Oh, that's the question? Yes. Uh, Dundas is a Welsh name. I am not of Welsh descent myself, but my grandfather on my father's side died at a very young age, and my dad's stepfather uh, adopted him. Really burned a lot of territory on that one. Uh, from Liam Collins, what is happening with the UFC's expansion in the UK? Have the UFC realized there is no more progress to be made here, so why bother pushing it? Yeah, their whole international expansion plan seems to be a little bit on hold. I think probably because of the economy. From James, are you in favor of allowing knees to the head of a downed opponent and would allowing them significantly change the progression or even outcome of fights? The hand on the canvas game really takes the momentum out of a fight. Uh, last part of the question, yes. First part of the question, no. From Brady Carlson, who gives a shit if Hector Lombard was hurt with it before his fight with Tim Boach? Do you give him a pass for his, in parentheses, shitty performance now that you know this? No. If you're hurt, don't fight. If you fight, don't bitch. From Josiah Ronaldin. 
I know there's been all this discussion about Frankie Edgar moving to 145, but since he walks around weighing about 158 or so, do you think bantamweight is a possibility? Yeah, I do, and I think his boxing coach does too. From Jared McKenzie, with the announcement of Shinya Aoki's next bout versus Arnon Lapont at 1FC, is it clear he is the least concerned fighter in the world with his own career? Uh, yes? From Guillermo Dominguez from Brazil, if the champion don't want to defend his belt against the top contender, should the champion give up his belt and do only big fights? I mean, a champion should defend his title, right? Yes. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> from Stefan Gimbrano. That's not a real name. Are there any fighters you find it difficult to write about objectively in an unbiased manner? No, I, I honestly have a hard time explaining to fans how little we care who wins and who loses. From Gareth Long, why do fighters shave slash wax their bodies before a fight, and which is better, waxing or shaving? I don't know, man, but it's weird. I think the best thing is to, like, shave two days before, so then your arms are like sandpaper. And lightning round! Well, Chad, you, you clocked in there at 2 minutes, 29 seconds, and 3 tenths of a second. 229? 229. Wow, pretty, we'll pretty round down tough to 229. To I feel like now you have the advantage, though, because you know what your time is, so you're just going to, like, short-arm a lot of the questions and say yes and no. Well, I knew that there would be some complaining already before I even have a chance to go. Uh, but, hey, maybe I won't burn a bunch of time talking about my whole goddamn family tree. So I didn't, somebody, A, somebody asked, and B, I didn't even <laughs> tell the whole story. <laughs> I'm sure it's a riveting tale. Uh, we'll save it for another episode of the podcast. Anyway. Maybe. Back to some normal questions. This one comes from Pedro Berman, who asks, does Ronda Rousey have a chance of beating any UFC fighter? If so, which one? I'm just going to say, by beating uh, Sarah Kaufman, she already beat one good little striker, so maybe she beats Dominic Cruz. He's another good little striker. <laughs> yeah, I feel like this is, a, this is a lightning round. We could have done this lightning round style because I feel like the answer is just no. Like, I don't, I mean, I just don't think she could. There's got to be somebody, right? Maybe, yeah, I don't know. Uh, in the UFC, no. I mean, she shows up at Sport Fight on Saturday night at, at uh, Mount Hood Community College, you know, outside Gresham at the, at the fucking Gresham Dome, and she probably beats everybody on the card. I don't know. But. <laughs> I, I would pay to see that, actually. Um, okay, the next one comes from Anthony Jones, uh, and this is a question specifically for me. It says, this question is for Ben. I've always wanted to know what Marcus Brimage said during his Ariel interview where Ariel had to bleep it out because it was so foul. Something about what he was going to do to any ladies he brought home that night? Yes, uh, I did not actually get to see the clip of that, but I was told about it in detail afterwards uh, and about why there was going to be a need to bleep it out. From what I recall, and again, this is you know, third-hand information. Uh, what I recall, I think he went off on how he liked fat girls because there were a lot of creases on them that were what? that were basically just like like multiple vaginas. That he had some kind of theory that just like wherever there's a crease on the human body, that is essentially a vagina, and that therefore bringing home a fat girl would be like bringing home a woman with. 12 vaginas, which for some reason he wanted. That is bleep-worthy, yeah. I have to say. So, you I asked. Bleep, I would bleep that. You asked. And again, I'm, I can't guarantee that that's exactly what he said. Our next that's, question that's what comes, I had heard. Our next question comes from Renee, who says, The NBA has the finals, the NFL has the Super Bowl, and soccer has the World Cup. Could you two debate whether the UFC should make one, quote-unquote, standout event each year, uh, in parentheses, same date each year, maybe, potentially featuring two or three title fights and the same number of number one contender fights to make it a must-view event at, that the media all over the world will pick up on. 
I mean, they, they sort of do that yeah. now. They have a couple of events that are traditionally yeah. big End of ones. the year one is yeah, usually a big one. New Year's Eve and Super Bowl weekend are both. Uh, uh, and then there's usually one in the summer, like usually July, uh, right around the time that they did UFC 100 before. Um, try and get one kind of close to the 4th of July there. Uh, but the problem is, for one, you can't do same date each year because you want to do fights unless you want to end up right. with a fight on, on like a Tuesday yeah, night or something. You have to do them on Saturday night. Yeah, so you can't really do that. It's also hard to do where you're like, okay, there are always going to be three title fights and two number one contender fights in the card because you don't know who's going to be hurt, who's going to be available, just where people are going to be in their various careers. So it's tough to really do it. But I, th- I think that... The UFC at this point has done a pretty good job of building up expectations that you know the end of the year card around New Year's Eve uh, is going to be a big one. Uh, I mean, it'd still be kind of awesome if they could do something like the way that the Japanese would always do a big one on New Year's Eve. But we have a different culture. We don't stay home and, and watch TV on New Year's Eve as much as the Japanese do, so that this kind of doesn't work. Yeah, I think the injuries might be the biggest yeah. limiting factor just because it would be a super huge bummer if you had that Super Bowl show coming up and then everybody got injured and you know you had Carlos Condit fighting some replacement guy who got subbed in two weeks before because George St. Pierre blew his knee out or something. So a uh, cool idea, I think, but probably impossible to pull off in, in practice. Uh, the next question comes from Charlie, who asks us, predictions for five years from now. A, are there women in the UFC? B, is John Jones a champion in any weight class? And C, is Dana still the face of the UFC? See, five years from now, so we're talking summer 2017. God, it's going to be a crazy summer. <laughs> the summer of love. Uh, are there women in the UFC? I'm going to say by then... At least one female fight has happened in the UFC, but it is not a regular thing. Chad? Okay. I, I kind of agree with that. You'd, I, I mean, I think it's going to take a pretty significant influx of talent before that they have, before they, they full on, before it convinces those guys who own that company to full on make it a, a, a reoccurring thing. So, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Just imagine where we were five years ago, I'm saying. Uh, B, is John Jones a champion in any weight class? I'm going to say yes, but I'm going to say trying times between now and then and that weight class is heavyweight interesting yeah i I sort of agree with that myself uh i think it's a fairly high probability that he will be a champion in some weight class uh i think you might be right though Uh, maybe he goes up to heavyweight for a few years tries that out it doesn't really work out he comes back down to to uh to light heavyweight or hell the newly uh christened cruiserweight division fights chris jericho in the summer of 2017 uh but yeah i I do agree with that c is dana still the face of the ufc i'm gonna say yes but i'm gonna say just barely because i think that this past year uh with the with everything involving the fox deal and with the ufc schedule really really kicking into high gear i think maybe for the first time we we saw dana white start to show some uh some chinks in the armor, so to speak. Like, I think it turned out to be a lot harder and a lot more physically taxing on him than maybe he even thought it was going to be. And I think that, like, that distant date down the road where he's going to hang it up and go back to Vegas and play with his kids or, or, or get a boat and sail around the world, uh, it, it started to creep a little closer and closer to him. Yeah, I don't know how physically he's managed to do this at the pace he does as long as he has. But I'm going to say, five years from now, no. Dana White is not the UFC because Dana White is living in a penthouse suite at the Station Casinos, gone all crazy Howard Hughes style, uh, growing his fingernails long, peeing into jars, and getting blood transfusions from pure Mormon blood. 
Uh, and wow, we never okay. we never see yeah. him in public again. He never sees the light he, of day. Is he going to have the Howard Hughes mustache though? The little pencil I line. I don't see why not. Sure. I don't see why he couldn't. Good look for him. I think. Yeah. Um. Next question comes from Peter Spencer. Does the communication problem somewhat offset? Well, I think I think we're missing something about this question. Oh, I think he's a, asking about Brazilian fighters. It seems to start in medias res here. Uh, does the communication problem somewhat offset their fighting success? They are being Brazilians, I think. I.e., after a great fight, does the Portuguese translator post-fight effectively does the Portuguese translator post-fight effectively dump a bucket of cold water on the excitement of the actual fight? I could cite examples, Ed Soras, but I'm trying to keep this succinct in an effort to avoid a Chad hand slap, in parentheses, as enticing as that sounds. Yeah, that didn't really work, because that is not a succinct question. <laughs> uh, I am going to say the... I'm going to say yes and no. I, you know, I don't think that you've seen, like, the language barrier be a particularly big problem for a lot of a lot of stars, because we have a lot of Brazilian stars in the UFC. Uh, you know, Anderson Silva, Leota Machida... I'm not uh, Jose Aldo, just to name a few. I'm not sure that the language barrier has really set those guys back. Uh, I will say, though, that the immediate in-cage post-fight interview is pretty much a bad look for anyone, no matter what language they speak. Uh, yeah. It's really hard to pull that off. I mean, you saw Ronda Rousey this past weekend, not to single her out, but, uh, you know, Mauro Ronaldo asked her a couple of questions, and she just started going rapid fire i don't even she she called out cyborg but as for the rest yeah. of the stuff she said i, I had no I idea get a lot of that i had no idea of what she even said and then like maro asked her a follow-up question and she said was the first part not clear enough for you yeah and sitting, at, sitting at home i was yeah. like no i didn't catch a word of that actually <laughs> uh, no, and they're jacked over and you know remember when in the the older days when it was always every single time Joe Rogan asking the fighter to talk us through the Mickey's replay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they never, they were so hyped up and they had just happened and they never really knew exactly what was happening. Like they're watching the replay and they're not exactly sure what they're watching at first. And it was always just a mess. Always. Uh, I don't know. The thing that I wonder about with the language barrier with Brazilian fighters is not so much post fight stuff, but like it's tough for, I think American fans to feel like they get a good fix on the guy's personality uh, because it's not just what the guy says. It's not just the actual translation, but it's like you, we can tell a lot more than we think about with American fighters and, or just English speaking fighters, not just by what they say, but how they say it and subtle uh, hints of, of that, that language gives us. And we don't get that. And I've heard like Brazilians say before about, you know, and I've said about like Anderson Silva, like, Oh no, these little, some little words or, or things he drops are indicative of a certain class certain class, uh, you know, arrogance in Brazil or something, which we would never have any idea about. Or it's like, I don't know, does does Vanderlei Silva sound punchy? Or is that just, we just, you know, we can't really tell because of the Portuguese. Do Brazilian fighters speak Portuguese as poorly as American fighters speak English? That's That would be a question of mine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think of that kind of stuff is the stuff we miss. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't, what's, what's the solution? Because sometimes... Uh, you'll see the guys who, bless their hearts, make a real commitment to try and learn English to do it in the post-fight interview. But then, you know, it, it's basically pigeon English and you don't really get much out of it. Worst post-fight interview of all time? I have to go with native English speaker Paul Buentello after he won that fight in the UFC. And this was during the time when Buentello was briefly trying to popularize a catchphrase for himself. And that catchphrase was, don't fear me, fear the consequences. <laughs> uh, and he said... 
they asked him some question and he said, first, let me see if I've got any fans in here. And then he said, don't fear me. And then he was hoping that the, the fans would like answer in unison oh. with fear the consequences. Oh, but it was so just deafening silence. It was <laughs> one of the most embarrassing things. How about when Frank Trigg got beat by Matt Hughes the second time and then still shouted out his catchphrase, Yo, his yeah. broke-ass catchphrase, yeah. you know? Yeah. You don't get to you do your catchphrase after you lose. That, that you one, don't. That was pretty bad as well. From Marcus Stearman, he, Marcus provides us with just three declarative sentences. He says... More rounds should be scored 10-10. More fights should end in draws. Discuss. I agree and don't agree uh, in some weird way here. You know, reading, anytime I read like old-timey boxing history books and they'll talk about how often fights used to end in draws there because it was like, well, if we say we're going to go 20 rounds and we go 20 rounds and then we just kind of ask the referee, like, did you think anybody, you know, just totally beat the shit out of anybody else? And, you know, if he says no, then it was pretty common for those fights. If it just went the distance, ah, it's a draw. If it went the distance and one guy was clearly absolutely dominating it and the other guy just survived, then they'd give a decision. Uh, but, I mean, that was just kind of normal. Like, you let the guy last the difference. And maybe, in fairness, 20 goddamn rounds is a long time to fight. So if you can't put a guy away inside of 20 rounds or at least distinguish yourself, then maybe it deserves to be called a draw. Uh, but yeah, I would I would not be opposed to a few more 10-10 rounds, especially when we're like, you know, what are we doing when we just say, ah, that was close, but ah, screw it, I'll give it a 10-9 to this guy. I mean, sometimes it's so close that you deserve a 10-10 round. I think, feel like judges are scared of that because they know how unpopular draws are. Yeah, from a standpoint of pure sport, I would agree. I would say that there ought to be more draws. From a standpoint of promoting mixed martial arts and trying to interest people in it, I think it would be a fucking disaster. Like, <laughs> as it is now, people bitch and complain and moan about judges' decisions all the time. Can you imagine if, like, what would happen if, like, 30% of the fights ended in draws? Yeah, and I guess I wonder, though, if that's, like, is that better? The bitching about fights where they say, oh, I didn't think that that guy deserved to win, or this guy got robbed or something, is that bitching better than the, the bitching about draws? I mean, I think bitching about draws and draws in general would get old real, real fast. Yeah, you're probably right there. Uh, the next question is from David Neighbor, who asks, Shannon Knapp said that the cute little fights on Invicta FC2 <laughs> drew over 300,000 online views. Do either of you sexist pigs believe those stats? If so, isn't it only a matter of time before Invicta has a broadcast deal? Now, I am not certain how I got lumped in with the sexist pig uh, crowd because... I continue to stand up for gender equality. By not watching Invicta fights. Exactly. That's how you do it. Just that one time. Yeah. I wouldn't have watched it if they were all dudes. Yeah. No, you're, you're a goddamn revolutionary standing up for women's rights there by, by not watching them fight. You know, it's interesting. I, I've, I've talked to Shannon Knapp a little bit about uh, the, the Invicta numbers. Um, and I would like to talk to them and their, their, whoever does their streaming stuff more to see if, cause those are those numbers, if true are kind of amazing. So, uh, I haven't been able to independently verify that stuff yet. I, I, I mean, Shannon Knapp does not seem to me like a dishonest person, uh, in all the interactions I've had with her. I, I've known her for a few years and, uh, you know, Shannon Knapp seems like a good, good person, somebody trustworthy. So, uh, you know, I'm inclined to, to take her word for it, but at the same time, you got to trust but verify with something like that because those are kind of crazy numbers for an internet stream of all women's fights. But hey, I mean, 
ho- hopefully they are doing some crazy numbers and they do get a TV deal. That that would be pretty. Those, those numbers would in fact be crazy though, yeah, right? Like that that's, would be that's pretty high. Yeah. Uh, Zachary Thoreau asks. When someone asks what you guys do for a living and you tell them MMA journalist, do people ever give you a judging look because they think it's barbaric? If yeah, what's your reaction? And what would your reaction be if you had no restraints? This is an interesting question, but I think maybe not for the reason that the question asker thinks. I would say that what we what we tell people we do for a living depends very much on the person asking. Yes. Because like when an old person asks what you do for a living, you just tell them you're a sports writer and you pray to God that you can get away with that. Yeah, you hope for no follow-ups. If you have to tell them that you're an MMA writer or you write about uh, if you write about UFC, uh, nine times out of ten, they are not even going to know what that is. Well, and, and here's the thing also. Uh, and I'm sure that you've encountered this as well, especially in Missoula, which is a pretty small town. Uh, and we both write for, you know, national big company news outlets. Um, but if, you know, if you're somewhere in Missoula and somebody asks, old person or not, you know, what you do, if you say I'm a sports writer, their first reaction is like to think that you mean the Missoulian, right. the, the, the paper of record for Western Montana. Which in my case used to be true. Yeah, you used to be a sports writer for the Missoulian. So then you could just end the conversation right there. But then, you know, there's only so many sports writers for the Missoulian, so they will have heard of you if they read the Missoulian at all. Um, so, yeah, there, then there's this kind of this weird thing like, oh, do you write for the Missoulian where you can already tell that they think you're lying? And then you have to be like, you know, I, I write for, you know. And there's this weird kind of Missoula thing where it's somebody's like, people in Missoula are going to be like, no, there's nobody in Missoula who writes for ESPN.com. That's yeah. not, that doesn't happen. Nobody in Missoula does that. Nobody in Missoula writes for USA Today. Come on. Like, they, they kind of have that attitude. So that's another level of difficulty. But also, yeah, I mean, if I think that the person might be in the demographic enough and I can be like, you know the UFC? And they're like, yeah, and then you can be like, okay. But uh, never do I ever feel like if I tell somebody what I write about, they're going to feel that I am some kind of barbarian for yeah, writing about yeah. it. And being judged is far less common than in just encountering confusion. complete confusion. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, and uh, my wife's... I guess my, my my wife's stepmom, I have told her probably a thousand times what I do for a living, and yet she still refers to MMA as extreme wrestling. And every time I see her, she's like, how's the extreme wrestling going? And well, I don't know if she's talking about my job or if she's talking about the weird fetish that me and my wife are into. So. Uh, well, we're about 40 minutes in. Are you, do you want to do your lightning round? Yeah, okay. All right. Um here we go. Ben, your lightning round begins now. From Giles Phillips, do you know why Bruce, Buff- Bruce Buffer in recent events has changed his catchphrase from it's time to it's fight time? No. From Jay, so Ellenberger versus Hyron is the co-main event of UFC 151. Are you fucking kidding me? Yes, I'm fucking kidding you. From John Custodio, why does Dana White constantly shit on Roy Nelson? Physique-wise, Big Country is doing no worse than Russo, Moorcraft, or Hunt. Is, that, that, is it all just to stir up some press for tough? No, I think it's genuine. Roy Nelson is actually kind of a tough guy to work with in a lot of ways. He is very independent-minded and uh, doesn't necessarily go with the flow as much as Dana would like. From Chris Chang, if GSP fights Anderson Silva and dominates him, where will that place GSP in the best ever pound for pound? He, he will be it, the best ever pound for pound. From Jason Smith, 
Proposal to prevent boring fights. Both fighters compete for the higher paid fighter's purse. Say fighter A's normal winning salary is $150,000, while up and coming fighter B is only $30,000. Under this system, a, fight to, a fighter keeps to keep his normal purse. You know what I'm saying. Answer the question. Uh, no, that's a terrible idea. Yeah, I agree. Uh, from Arnov John Jay, uh, who do you guys feel would win in a fight between Chuck Liddell and Dan Henderson in their prime? Uh, in their prime, I'm going to say Chuck Liddell because Dan Henderson was not that great in his prime. From Punk Curmudgeon, if UFC on Fox 5 fails with such a strong card, what will they do then? Uh, shoot themselves in the face. Uh, from Michael the Swede, uh, what are your thoughts on the Shogun Gustafson fight? This must be a number one contender fight, or will Chael beat Forrest and then be able to talk himself into contender status? I think that will be a number one contender fight, the Gustafson uh, Hua one, and I think it's a really exciting fight that is going to go badly for Hua. For Sa- from Saucy J, now that Ben is presumably making seven figures at MMA Junkie, is it reasonable to expect all kinds of sweet weekly swag just for listening to this shit? No, I'm saving for a helicopter. Uh, for, from Benjamin T, what would you think of the UFC putting together an all-lightweight pay-per-view or Fox card similar to UFC 146, the all-heavyweight show? I think it'd be awesome. From Massive Distract, who I can only assume is a rave DJ. When <laughs> Nate Diaz meets Henderson, who wins? Uh, Nate Diaz. Uh, from Pedro Palmeiras, why don't foreign UFC fighters mostly win on UFC's events in Brazil? I, I don't know. 220.5. Yes! So... Even with my stumbling and some of your more long-winded answers, you smoked me by almost a full nine seconds. Yeah, even where you had to add how you agreed with my answer in one of the one of the questions, which I feel like was a blatant violation of the rules and an attempt to put me over, didn't work. Didn't work, Dundas. No, no, it, it didn't work at all. Uh, now I'm trying to backtrack to find where we were in the actual questions before uh, we did this craziness. Um. Okay, wait, I, I found it here. here right. Here's one that I actually thought was interesting. Um, from Yotam Wilson. This is a long one, so everybody kind of settle in and get ready. On my way to work down here in Adelaide, Australia, I was listening to the podcast and enjoying the last few minutes of freedom before starting to take calls from frustrated users who need IT support. To my surprise, I noticed a familiar bulky figure in one of the food courts across a shortcut. Uh, first thing that came to my mind was, holy shit, it's Andre Galval. Who I, and secondly, what the fuck is he doing in Adelaide? I was excited, so excited I wanted to do something. Not sure what something was. A picture maybe? A handshake? Creepy? I finally get to see an actual personality from the sport I'm obsessed with in real life, but I got nothing for him. My question for you is, is it lame to ask for your picture taken with fighters and various MMA personalities? My normal routine with, quote, famous people is just to say hi and maybe greet them with a have a nice day or good morning. But now I regret not taking a picture of Galval. Do you guys have some sort of tip for a well-rounded fight fan encountering an MMA celebrity? Well, first of all, Adelaide, Australia, represent. That's awesome. Uh, Second of all, this dude recognized Andre Galval. That is also awesome. You know what? I thought, it, I thought that at first, too, and then I wondered if maybe he just didn't see kind of a bulky Brazilian dude and assume it was Andre Galval. That's almost the kind of detail that makes you think the story is made up, but also the kind of detail that you probably couldn't make up, right? <laughs> maybe. But okay, you know what? I always wonder, because you see at UFC events, people are, you know, if there's a fighter there who's not fighting, but who's just kind of there, he's constantly getting stopped. People want to take their pictures with him. If you try to go to like a weigh-in or something with Helwani, it's, you can't walk anywhere with him because people are constantly stopping to take pictures with him. And of course, they always want me to take the picture of 
uh, them and Helwani with their cell phone. That's got to be humbling. Yeah. Uh, so, but I always wonder, like, what are you really doing with that picture? Like, what do you, what do you do? You go home and do you put that on Facebook? It's like, hey, here's me with this dude, and we're putting our fists up or something. Like, I just don't know what you. It feels like a thing that you do because you want to do something at the time, but I don't feel like you really are gonna. It's gonna be as cool afterwards as you think. Yeah, well, let's just make the side point uh, that you brought up a second ago. Don't think for one second that these fighters don't absolutely fucking love it when they get mobbed for people (laughs) who want to take pictures with them because the truth is these dudes are only famous like one weekend a month, and that is the weekend that they go to the UFC. Well, especially if you see them like in an environment like this, yeah, where it's like not at a fight. I don't care who it is. I mean, if you see like... You know, Chael Sonnen or Alistair Overeem or something, and they're outside of that fight environment. I think that yeah, they would be way more into it. Like somebody wants to take their picture because it's like, oh wait, like somebody not inside the MGM Grand knows who I am and, and thinks I'm famous. Like okay. Uh, second of all, man, if you're a, f- it's second of all, it's only embarrassing to get your picture taken with a fighter if you are a working member of the media. Like, <laughs> yeah, don't if, do that. If you're just a fan and you love the sport and you see some guy that you like to watch fight, you want to get your picture taken with him and he's cool with it. I say, man, more power to you. I think that, that, you know, that's awesome. The only thing I would say is like, don't do the fist pose yeah. because that's just played out. It is. Like, out. Try to think of something else. Unless you're doing the fist pose, ironically. Hard to tell sometimes. <laughs> Hard to tell. Uh, this question is from Kevin Mills. Okay. You know how a lot of fighters always thank God after a fight, win or lose? Did you ever notice they're all Christian? You have, you never hear anyone reference any other God in the cage. Not only that, but every single champion the UFC has right now is Christian. And this is a worldwide organization. Is this just a coincidence or what? I feel like this question is leading the witness slightly. <laughs> You're saying that the perhaps the question asker is trying to uh, imply that uh, Jesus, their Lord and Savior, is winning fights for guys? I kind of feel that way. And if not, like maybe reread it before you send it in because that is definitely the impression that you get from that's the impression i get from reading it i you know i do i would like to hear a fighter win a fight and then thank zeus yeah i think that would be awesome yeah or you know like Ares or something yeah thank the old gods yeah yeah the the the, the old gods and the new <laughs> i don't i don't know why that's got to you know or do like a a titus polo thing where they uh get down on one knee and and start out their post-fight speech with the line, Hear me, Mars. Uh, I think that, that kind of stuff would be awesome. So maybe it's time to bring polytheism back is what I'm saying. I'm going to say, no, it's not a coincidence because obviously these people's Christian God is pushing them to victory in a mixed martial arts fight that airs on pay-per-view television. Sometimes over other Christians. Around the world, oftentimes over other Christians. And the Christian God is okay, but the God that kicks the most ass obviously is the Catholic God. Because otherwise, I don't know how Brazilians would be so tough, man, you know? <laughs> well, here's the thing. And I think we, it's kind of, we've talked about this before about how often elite professional athletes uh, tend to be religious. Uh, it makes sense to me because, if, especially at this level where everybody's working hard, right? Like, I mean, everybody is in the gym every day doing all the things they're supposed to be doing. Everybody's training hard. Uh, talent, that little bit of talent is what separates uh, a lot of times, you know, you're John Jones from your Rashad Evans. And if you're going out there and a part of you realizes this and you think, well, if that other guy is just a little better than me, and not even that doesn't have to be a whole lot better than me. If he's just a little bit better than me, no matter what I do, 
unless he totally fucks up, he's still going to beat me. You know, how do you live in that world where your self, you know, your identity, your, 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 your finances, so much rides on that. How do you live with that knowing that like, hey, that other guy might just be better? And what accounts for you being better than some other people? Was it just some damn genetic lottery that you won? Is it just luck? I mean, that kind of stuff can be hard to grapple with. It's a lot easier if you tell yourself, well, I am favored by God. I'm nice to God. God is nice to me. He has blessed me with these skills. And as long as I keep shouting them out in the post-fights interviews and going to church and reading my Bible, uh, he will bring me victory. Like that that does probably make it a little easier to, to get in the cage and have confidence in yourself yeah i I think in in professional sports in general we the general public kind of underestimate the psychological strain and sheer desperation that's involved because if you think about it like if you're a professional athlete almost in any sport like you are always the best player on your team and at every level from like little league to middle school to high school to then like college and professional, like you are sort of probably the only guy that advances, right? Like at every level that you advance, you see more and more of your peers and even more and more of your friends like drop to the wayside and not be able to compete. Whereas like you keep getting better and better and better and keep progressing. And part of that has to make you wonder like, well, fuck, when is this going to happen to me? Like when, at what point am I going to reach this ceiling and be, you know, cast aside or, you know, am I just going to, am I, why am I so special? So I think both of those like kind of predispose someone to believing in some sort of higher power that a, it kind of, you don't have to be, you don't have to deal with the strain because you can just be like, wow, man, it's all in God's plan. You know, whatever is going to happen, whatever is written is going to happen. And second of all, it allows you to think like, wow, God must really like me, man. I must be doing a great job in terms of my life because I just keep advancing and advancing. I will say though, like when John Jones gets falls to his knees on the canvas after a fight and yells, God is good. Like, yeah. I mean, if you're a six foot four super athlete who just beats the shit out of everyone you come across, God probably does seem pretty good. Yeah. The rest of us have to take our fucking chances. (laughs) In case you are wondering, Chad and I are not particularly religious. Uh, Here's a question wanted to get to. um, Somebody asked me directly from Roman. Uh, says he wants to ask a question or rather make a statement and then add, huh? Since you have been to Germany, how has been watching the UFC with Germans? And what did they say about German MMA and MMA in German society? I think because of the necessity to push pacifism in Germany after some unfortunate events in the last century, the Germans overcompensated. And now the general public in Germany thinks not only invade, invading your neighbors and trying to exterminate a whole race is a bad thing, luckily, but also when two adult half-naked dudes or dudettes step into a cage and want to punch and kick each other in the face. With other words, boxing already has a thuggish reputation, but MMA really struggles with the stigma of being a blood sport, no rules, cage fight to the death. And this is really even worse than in other countries. So how did you perceive it? Wow. First of all. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to... I mean, this guy's writing in a, in a second language, and I took four years of... It German. has a little humor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I took four years of German in high school and college. But As did I. Could not write a letter in German. It would uh, take a long time. It would take a long time. A lot of looking through the, the dictionary. Uh, but when he, when he says that after some unfortunate events, I hope... But he, he says in the last century, so he could be yeah, talking about anything. I hope he doesn't mean the Holocaust. Weimar Republic, right? right? Yeah. That, yes. could, that could be it. Yes. Um, in answer to the question, though, when I watched... Uh, the USA and it was the John Jones Rashad Evans uh, event when I w- happened to be in Germany 
I watched it at like 4 a.m. on my laptop in my hotel room with my headphones in so that I didn't wake up my wife. So I don't know that I really, it wasn't like I was in Sounds a bar. Sounds like your experience was awesome. <laughs> it wasn't like I was in a bar rubbing elbows with fellow fight fans in Germany. Um, so I can't really give you much insight there. Although it is kind of awesome that at first I was a little bummed that I'd have to watch that event on the internet because my experience with the live streams that way has been uh, negative at times. But it was kind of awesome because you can switch camera modes. You can turn off the commentary if you are getting annoyed. Uh, it was kind of sweet. Plus it was free. Um, and then once it was over, then I just went and had breakfast. It was kind of awesome. Maybe referring to the Holocaust as an unfortunate event, sort of an understatement. Well, it was um, unfortunate. All right. From Robert Schlicker. Would an immediate Chael Sonnen title shot following a win over Forrest Griffin hurt the legitimacy of the light heavyweight championship and number one contenders in general? Uh, I don't know if it would hurt the legitimacy of the light heavyweight championship or number one contenders. The, the main problem to me would be if John Jones lays waste to Dan Henderson, I'm not sure that the fix, I mean, a fight between him and Chael Sonnen would sell, obviously, so I understand why they would do it. However... You know, the thing that you want to see from John Jones at that point is not him fighting smaller guys. Like, you well, want to see the exact opposite yeah. of that. And I think it would be bullshit for Chael Sonnen to win one fight against Forrest Griffin and then that to launch him into a title shot. That's, it would not work that way for anybody else. No one else would, you know, yeah, but you Shogun can beat see, the shit out of Forrest Griffin. You can see why they would do it. Yeah, though. I could see why they would do it. It doesn't mean I think that they should do it. I mean, I think that that's a, a terrible idea. Um, okay, here's one. I find it odd, well this is from Eli, I find it odd that after years of foreign fighters in the UFC, the refs still don't know a few critical phrases like, let go of the fence, no strikes to the back of the head, and stop, the fight is over. Outside of Mario Yamasaki, I don't think I've ever heard a ref speak in Portuguese or Japanese. Your thoughts? I mean, do you really think that <laughs> state athletic commissions, for starters, are going to go to Steve Mazzagatti? Or... <laughs> <laughs> that dude in California with the mustache. What's that guy's name? Bolton? Mike Bolton? Something like that? Michael Bolton? No, that can't be. Uh, it. No, that's not it. That's not right. Uh, <laughs> but you that think that... Let's, so let's it. use Steve Mazzagatti because I know his name. You think that they're going to go to who I can only assume is Texan Steve Mazzagatti and be like, hey, man... Uh, I know that you probably don't get paid that much to do this job, but like... We're really going to need you to take a couple years of introductory Portuguese. <laughs> well, no, I mean, that's not the same thing as saying, like, here's a phrase book with these phrases in a couple other countries. But I, I agree, though. Mazagati has a hard enough time doing this job in one language. Yeah. Let's so not throw this at you him. You think, like, when Eric Silva has a guy against the cage and he's pounding him in the <laughs> he's face. He's going to take out the little yeah. book and flip through it. Yeah. Herb Dean is going to go for his Portuguese phrase book <laughs> and, like, skip past Donde Esta La Biblioteca and go straight for, like, <laughs> stop punching that other man in the face. I, I just, I don't think so. Anyway, this question is from Travis Cruder, who asks, I'm thinking about moving to Montana. What are the best and worst things about living there? Uh, well, the worst things are that if you don't work a job that you can do from home on the internet, then there aren't a whole lot of great jobs to be found in Montana. Would you yeah. agree with that, Chad? Yeah, no, I would totally agree with that. I would say that aside from the fact that you're just not going to get paid any money to work here if you work for a company that is local. Almost everything else is pretty awesome about living yeah. in Montana. But we should make the point there are sort of two Montanas. There's Missoula, which is the city where we live, where the University of Montana is. 
which is about a hundred thousand people, and you know, uh, it's a progressive town. It, it there's a lot of like art and music and awesome bars here, and an awesome community of writers. In fact, there's an awesome community of writers, and then there is sort of everywhere else in Montana. Where, which is, if you want to talk about red states and blue states, like as deeply, unbelievably red as you can possibly get. So red, it's almost purple. Does that, <laughs> does that make sense? Yes. Well, and I mean, Missoula is a little bit of a, a cultural enclave that has the awesome stuff about Montana, which is the natural beauty, the uh, general people are nice to each other uh, aspect of the small towns, but not like so much in each other's shit that it's annoying it's the kind of thing where like you're not going to be an asshole to somebody on the road because you're probably going to see them again but you don't know uh you know it's not like people are gossiping about each other's cousins all the time so it's that kind of perfect blend of that kind of stuff plus montana in general is kind of uh even it's it's right-wingedness is has more of a libertarian bent uh montanans in general are skeptical of laws and yeah, of government that's true. That's and true. They want to be left alone and therefore generally believe in leaving each other the fuck alone. Yeah. Uh, so that's Sometimes nice. for better, sometimes for worse. Yeah, yes. Uh, well, I noticed that we just went over the one hour mark and we have officially gone through four pages of the ten pages of questions that we have for this episode. So at this point, I don't know what you want to do. We are verging on being in the area where we're going to violate one of our solemn vows. Okay. Here's vow, vow number three. This shit only going to be an hour. Here's what I think we should do. Of the remaining questions that we have in front of us, you pick one and I'll pick one that we want to make sure gets in there. So I would have to go through them right now and find well, one. Well, maybe you saw one before and you thought, that's a good one. I hope that that one gets, gets asked and answered. Okay. Well, do you have one? Are you, gonna, are you ready to go? Do you just have one that you can... You can pop off with while I look for uh, one that I like? Yes. All right, go kind for it. Of. Go for it. Okay. Cowboy. Uh, Big shooter. Okay. Ace. <laughs> Hold on. Okay. From James Somerville. Do oh, one either of the essay contest yes. uh, submissionists. By the way, those of you who won essay contest prizes and we shipped them out to you, uh, if you get them, how about give us a holler on Twitter or on emails? Because we haven't heard that anybody has actually gotten a prize yet. And so it's kind of making us... I don't want to say it's going to make me question my patronage down at Going Postal where we shipped all this stuff from. But I'd like to know that this stuff is actually finding its intended recipient. Yeah, we have a couple of international packages still to send out. Yeah. But uh, many of you should have received your prizes. Yes. Including the grand prize winner. Yes, Absolutely. Uh, James Somerville asks, and this is a question that kind of comes up a lot at MMA Media, so that's why I wanted to, to get it in there. Do either or both of you train or have any experience uh, that training? That was going to be mine. That was the one I was just looking for. <laughs> in MMA or a specific martial art, does your lack or lack of lack of ex expertise in MMA or a specific martial art impact your ability to cover the sport? Why? Chad? Um, I do not. Well, that's actually a lie. Ben is probably going to talk about his Brazilian jiu-jitsu background. He is a, are you still a purple belt? I mean, nobody has come, taken it away from me. <laughs> well, no one came to your house and like gave you a promotion though either. Like you didn't become a brown belt without I, me knowing it. No, I don't know. The last time I trained anywhere where they actually do geese and belts, the, the college kids these days, they don't want to do geese and belts. No, they true. want to do all no geese stuff. Yeah. So. Uh, my combat sports background includes doing Taekwondo when I was like six or like eight. I was probably like eight. That's six would be pretty young. Yeah. Uh, and then for about six months, I went to the gym with Ben Folks and 
just basically allowed him to beat the shit out of me, mostly on the feet, um, because his grappling prowess was so dominant that I think he got really bored really fast of just tapping me out. So we would strap on the boxing gloves and, and throw down, which was a little bit more equal than the grappling. Uh, and that's about it. To the point asked by the uh, the questioner, the listener, um, no, it doesn't affect the way I cover the sport or my ability to cover the sport at all. Um, this is a thing that is brought up all the time, though, usually by a-holes, uh, <laughs> because... In fairness, I, James Somerville himself does not seem like No, 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 no. I don't, I don't want to, to, to put Somerville in that category because he seems like a nice dude. But, like, if you encounter an MMA a-hole on the internets and, and they're trying to, like, besmirch your credentials as a reporter, the first place that they will in, invariably go uh, is... Well, oh yeah. Well, like, where? How do? You, how much do you fight? Where do you train? Usually, because this yeah. guy. Was, what the fuck do you know? This guy came in like eighth in the state in high school wrestling like fifteen years ago, and he's trying to make some point. Um, it doesn't affect how I, how I report on the sport. It doesn't affect my ability to report on the sport because, in fact, almost every writer in the world who is a journalist does not have a professional or amateur background in a lot of the stuff they write about. For instance. None of the people on the White House press corps were ever the president. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Howard yes. Cosell was never a professional boxer. Yeah. Um, Roger Ebert is uh, not a director of films. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, to, to, to my situation specifically, I think you'll find if you look at the stuff that I write about, I almost never write about what you might call X's and O's of fighting. Technical stuff. Like I, yeah. I never, like, get in there and be like, oh, man – uh, Alexander Gustafson's jab sucks. Like he's yeah. <laughs> not rotating his hips when he throws a straight right or whatever. Uh, not because I don't think that I could. I think I would be on a little bit more tenuous ground there as a writer. But just because I think, Jesus Christ, how fucking boring would that be? Yeah, I don't think people want to read that. To me, the stuff that is more interesting as a reporter and like an analyst and a writer is pretty much like all of the stuff that surrounds the fight, honestly. Like that's mostly a lot of the stuff that I write about is like, you know, what are they going to do with this guy now that he's lost four in a row? Or like what's... What they going to do with John Jones now that he's so dominant not to mention here's the thing like you know I've, I've done a little bit of jujitsu and a little bit of like boxing and stuff here or there but at the same time even if I had had a couple amateur MMA fights or even if I got you know fought on a couple of the like pro shows around Montana it wouldn't necessarily give me any insight to what it's like to fight in the UFC I mean yeah. that's those two things are so you know one thing like Fighting recreationally for fun because you enjoy martial arts and competition, um, you know, I get that. But, like, what it's like to fight for a living and have your so much about your life dependent on that and it makes all the, the, that suffering and that sacrifice that those guys go through to get in there, you're not going to know what that's like. Um, and... Just because I would know what it's like for me doesn't mean I'd know what it's like for, you know, most of the people doing it. It's like, it's like with football. Like, I played football all through high school, played just enough in, in college to realize that I was not good enough to play in college. But then that does not give me any insight at all into what it's like to play in the NFL. And right. to pretend otherwise would be to kid myself and to kid the readers. And again, yeah, I don't feel like people really want to hear uh, me describe how somebody's choke technique totally sucks i mean i think like joe rogan is a good guy to do that because he's doing it while we're watching it and can make some kind of points about why a choke will or won't work that kind of stuff uh i don't th i think people would rather hear the stories about fighters uh and you know what's going on in their lives and what they have to say and what they think 
you know, that, that kind of analysis in that direction more than they want to hear, you know, you break down how a, an uppercut should be thrown. Yeah. And some guys who have fighting backgrounds do a really good job of reporting on the sport. You know, some guys that have fighting backgrounds don't. And I yeah. think the idea that one is inherently connected to the other is like pretty wrong headed. Yeah. And in fact, some of the worst guys in like all journalism fields are guys that have backgrounds in the stuff that they report and or write about. Yeah. If you want to be a someone who writes about MMA for a living, my advice would be, sure, do, do a little bit of jujitsu or whatever. Do a lot more writing. Yeah. Especially since, like, man, this is the only shit I can do. Like, I, I don't need to be out there, like, putting my brain cells on yeah. the line. No, your brain is all you got. It's, you're not running a looks operation over here. Let's just say that. Uh, I'm going to ignore that and go on to the last <laughs> question, which I have chosen for insider baseball reasons. And it's from Maggie Hendricks, uh, our colleague, colleague in the industry who asks, since you both have a baby on the way, let's say your wives lost their minds and said, Hey, <laughs> let's name our baby after a fighter. Who would you name him slash her after and why? Now I, my wife is further along in her pregnancy. Uh, we will, she about to pop. She will be crapping out a baby sometime in the next couple of weeks. We, we think we hope. Uh, and so we know we are having a girl child. Um, who I su- still suggest you named Diamond Dallas Dundas. Which is I, an awesome name. Yeah, Triple, Triple D. D. for short. Uh, but Best we, stripper in the club, man. Exactly, which is, uh, that's about probably as good as we can hope for. <laughs> uh, the, I think knowing that we have a girl child on the way leaves only two options for MMA-related names. My preference is Tank Abbott Dundas, <laughs> which is a solid unisex name. Yeah, you can name a boy, boy or, girl. or a girl yeah. Tank Abbott Dundas. Uh, my second choice, which I think is only for a girl, is Don Fry Dundas, which is, I think, yeah, know, it's a little bit out there. Yeah. You know, it's, you don't meet a lot of girls named Don Fry, yeah. but. <laughs> but it's one of those things where it's a generational thing. It's going to become super popular. Like she's going to be like, by the time she's in fourth grade, it'll be a bunch of girls named Don Fry Dundas. That's exactly right. And yeah. you, sir, what would you name well, your... Well, see, yeah, we don't know. We're finding out actually on Tuesday, Tuesday afternoon. So perhaps by the time you listen to this, we will know what sex our child is. Um, we do not know yet, so it makes it a little harder to plan. I will say MMA has kind of ruined a bunch of names for me when we talk about potential names. Because it's like, I, I feel like I can't name my child anything that might, where people might be like, oh, he named it after that fighter. Like a uh, one of my neighbors has a baby named Gray, oh, and yeah. as soon as I'm and as soon as they say, oh, this is our, our baby Gray, and I'm like, oh man, you 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 really big that that big a Gray Maynard fans, huh? Had to name <laughs> had to name your kid after Gray Maynard. I can't I can't you know. So it's like or like in a weird way, uh, like my wife suggested Quentin the other day. Mm. Can't do it. Yeah. Quentin Rampage Jackson. No, you don't want that. Just can't do it. Yeah. No. Um. Mm. So in that, I would say. Not exactly an MMA name, but after this weekend's, after uh, I'm going to take a, a line from Frank Shamrock during this weekend's Strike Force broadcast and say, I would name my child Gina Carando Folks. Yeah. I'm actually a black belt in Carando. <laughs> I should have brought that up when you were answer, I, I answering feel, yeah, the no. last question. Well, you don't want to tell people about your background in Gina Carando because then they think you're a real strict traditionalist. Yeah, no. I, the thing that's great about Carando is that you keep what works and throw everything else out. <laughs> I don't know, man. I mean, I've just seen too many strip mall Corando studios to, to have any respect for it anymore. Anyway, we've already gone on too long. We're at an hour and 10 minutes. Uh, thanks for sending in your questions. We 
God damn it, answered as many of them as we could. It was hard. Uh, we could probably do an hour show every day this week and not answer them all. Don't get any ideas. We're not doing that. We're gonna, <laughs> we'll be back next week. Uh, With a normal show. A normal show, probably three rounds. We'll wrap up what happened at uh, the UFC 151 extravaganza. Um, so by the time you listen to us again, we'll be talking about UFC light heavyweight champion, Dan Henderson or UFC light heavyweight champion, John Jones. Uh, but for now that's, that's Ben. I'm Chad. This is the co-main event podcast. If you made it this far, you're a fucking champion. Uh, but <laughs> as for now, that's it. We're done. We're out. Man, I can't believe that, uh, you, you, you ranked on me telling that story about my family name. I, you know, actually, I've never heard that story, so I think we all know. Here's the thing. If you accidentally kill someone using uh, Gina Colombo, do you think you get a, a longer prison sentence because you're a lethal weapon? Well, any practitioner of Colombo is uh, sworn to a life of pacifism and reason, so you would only ever even employ your Colombo in an instance of self-defense or where, I don't know, maybe you were protecting like, a stand of any growth kind. Or, you know, <laughs> yeah, no, that is how the Colombo monster.